spread quickly that day. It started in the earliest hours of the morning at one of the wells within the city. The women gathered to get the water for the day, and one of them whispered to another, Have you heard? He's coming today. And then word spread throughout the city with one person telling another person, telling another person that he is coming today. And each time that news was shared, they shared a little bit about what they knew of him. Have you heard how he speaks about God? I think that he is a priest. Have you heard of the things that he, have, he has done? I, I had a neighbor that was there and said it was practically miraculous what he had accomplished. Have you heard that they call him the wise? Some people even call him the hammer. Word spread that day, and the city was abuzz with the idea that this man was coming into the city. He was victorious. He was going to drive out their occupiers. And then a messenger from the town over ran up the road into the gates and yelled, He's coming! He's on the road now! So the people who had heard this news and were excited about it, they gathered at the gate and on the road that led into the city. And because they knew their Jewish history, they knew that victories were to be celebrated with palm branches. So they gathered palm branches and they waited for him to come down the road. And then just over the crest, they saw him. He was easy to see because he rode a majestic animal. He stood head and shoulders above the rest. And as he came closer, the excitement began to grow. And then they saw the people with him, men with shields, and swords, and they were already in a celebratory mood, and they were shouting their praises to God for this man. And the excitement of that group joined the excitement of the group that had come out of the city, and all waved their palm branches for him, and all put their palm branches on the ground so this beast of war could walk on them as this man entered triumphantly into the city. The year was 164 B.C., and that man's name was Simon Maccabeus. And he was bringing to the people a liberation for which they had so longed for. He was going to restore their kingdom for them. You see, they were under the rule of the Seleucid Empire, which was sort of an offshoot of the Greek Empire. They had been for decades, if not a century or more, and the Seleucids had banned the Jewish religion. And Simon, along with his father and his two brothers, had organized a group of Jewish revolutionaries that were called the Maccabeans. And throughout the land, they had defeated the Seleucids. And now they were entering into Jerusalem that they might drive out this occupying enemy, that they might restore the Jewish religion. In fact, a few days later, Simon's brother Judah entered into the temple and cleansed it of the statues to Greek gods, gods that the Seleucids had desecrated the temple with. 
that day is actually celebrated even today by Orthodox Jews and Jews everywhere. It's what's known as Hanukkah. And Simon was their victor. Simon was the one that they expected, and he brought the kingdom that they wanted. However, one of the ways that he gained, they, the, the Maccabeans gained their independence from the Seleucids was by cutting a deal with another one of the regional powers. They made an agreement with, in no small irony, the Romans. And the Romans helped them, and in so doing, acknowledged them as an independent state. And yet, that peace, that tranquility, that victory was very short-lived. In fact, in a few decades, they would then be ruled by the Romans. And you fast forward 200 years, and we come to our text this morning. There are some remarkable similarities in our text to that event in 164. But what is more important and what we should focus on is how these two events differ. So if you will, go ahead and turn in uh, John. We'll pick up the reading in John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You know, it's not too hard to imagine what that crowd's expectations were that day or why they had them. Um, their history as a people was full of hardships. They had been enslaved by the Egyptians. They had spent a generation or a generation and a half in the wilderness without a homeland. And, and when they finally entered into their, their home, they were then beset and besieged upon by the, their neighbors who were constantly warring against them. They even were conquered by world powers and they were exiled from their own homes and they were made foreigners in strange places. And then other world powers came in and dominated, dominated them. Powers like the Macedonians and the Seleucids. And now they were subjects in their own land to a foreign power, the Romans. And yet, they knew their God. They knew the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. They knew the one true God, and they knew that he was faithful to them. You see, they had grown up, each one of them, hearing and believing that they were God's chosen people. They heard the stories and believed the stories that God had been the one to deliver them out of captivity in Egypt, that God had been the one that had taken, to them, taken them to and delivered them into the promised land. 
They knew that it was God who every time their enemies besieged them, God would give them victory. And it was God when they were exiled who eventually brought them back. And it was God who drove out the Macedonians. It was God who drove out the Seleucids. And surely it would be God that would drive out the Romans. They also knew this. That from the earliest days, God had promised them a special king. God had promised them Messiah. He hinted at it to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. He made a covenant with Abraham, promising him that his descendants would number like the stars. He furthered that idea of Messiah in his covenants with Moses and David. And in the judges and the kings and the prophets, God continually reminded them, Messiah is coming. Your special king is coming. And the people heard that Jesus was coming that day. They heard what Jesus had done, and they made connections between what was said about Jesus or Messiah in the Old Testament and what they knew about Jesus, and they came to the conclusion that this must be the Messiah. And in that they were right. And they also knew, without a doubt, what Messiah would do. Isaiah actually talks a lot about Messiah in his prophetic book. Um, in fact, in, in chapters 61 through 63, more than that even, but just a few select readings from there, Messiah is speaking to Isaiah. And he is saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do. And he says in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 2 and 3, I come to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. In Isaiah 63, I trod the peoples in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. And in Isaiah 62, the first two verses, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord Will give. You see, they knew what Messiah would do. They knew that Messiah was going to come in and bring vengeance upon their enemies. He was going to drive out the Romans. He was going to establish Jerusalem as the capital of the world. And they were going to be liberated. And they were going to be put on a pedestal that all the nations around them might honor them. That is what Messiah was going to do. They were convinced that Jesus was entering the city that day as king to drive out the Romans. In that, though, they were wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is indeed king. He's just not the king they expected. And he didn't bring the kingdom that they wanted. You see, their view of kings is probably a lot like our view of kings. We want our kings to be right, impressive people. 
We want to look at a king and see the physical stature of a specimen, similar to when they looked at Saul and they saw him and he stood head and shoulders above the rest. They and we want our kings to be like David, who was a warrior who killed his tens of thousands. They want their kings to be arrayed in grand splendor, showing off their wealth like Solomon did in all his glory. But the problem is, Jesus wasn't any of those things. Jesus wasn't anything to look at. Again, Isaiah tells him, tells us that when we behold Messiah, we would esteem him not. In other words, we wouldn't even notice him. He just looked like another guy. He wasn't impressive to look at. And Jesus wasn't a warrior. Scripture tells us, he, or what we have recorded for us in Scripture, he never even picked up a weapon. In fact, he often talked about bringing peace, not war. And he wasn't rich. I assume he owned the clothes on his back, but other than that, he didn't have any worldly possessions. In fact, he himself told us that the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He did not have a home in which he could go to rest. So he wasn't impressive to look at. He wasn't a warrior. And he wasn't rich. He didn't meet their expectations of a king. But he was king. And he constantly subverted their expectations. You see, they expected him to come into the city with a grand army. Instead, he entered into the city with fishermen and a tax collector. They expected him to come in with a court and attendance, you know, attending to his every need. Instead, he had a small band of loyal followers. And they expected him to ride into the city like Simon of Maccabeus on a great war horse. But instead, he rode in on a donkey. And not even a donkey, a foal of a donkey. In fact, Matthew's gospel, in recording this event for us, tells us there were actually two donkeys. There was a mother and her child. They brought the mother along, ostensibly because the child would be guided by the mother. If the child came, the, the foal, the colt came on its own, it would be spooked by the crowds and all that. So they brought the mother along to calm the child. And when Christ looked at this pair and he had a choice of which one to ride, he chose the weaker of the two. You see, they wanted displays of power and of dominance, but Christ came in in humility into the city. And because they didn't get what they want, their excitement on that Sunday morning afternoon had died down by Sunday evening. And Monday came, their excitement had turned to disappointment and was rising a little bit. He went in and he cleansed the temple. And they wondered, why is he in the temple? He's supposed to be cleansing the palace. Tuesday came and nothing in the city changed. Wednesday came and Pilate was still governor. Thursday came, and Herod was still on the city's throne. And by Friday, all that excitement that they had had on Sunday had completely disappeared. Some of them, that excitement had transformed to hatred, 
because Jesus hadn't done what they wanted him to do. In fact, on that Friday, as Jesus stood before the crowd, he was accused of wanting to usurp the throne. The same thing that they had cried out to him, you are our king, Jesus was standing accused of. And they fell into one of two camps. Those that were there on Sunday, by Friday, they couldn't even be, they either couldn't be bothered to show up to defend Jesus, or they were an active part of the mob calling for his execution. You see, all of their excitement on Sunday was gone by Friday. In fact, by that Friday evening, when they sat down with their families to celebrate the Passover meal, Jesus was dead. Another failed Messiah, another disappointing kingdom. You know, maybe their shifting attitudes hit just a little too close to home for some of us. How many of us welcome Jesus into our lives with the same kind of excitement and fervor that that crowd showed on that first Palm Sunday? Yes, Jesus, come in now. Change my life. Now is when life gets better. Now is when it all works out. All of my problems I will be delivered from, and it will be nothing but good times and sunshine from here on out. But then that emotional and spiritual high that you feel at that initial experience when you meet Jesus starts to fade. And as it starts to fade in the days and weeks and months and maybe sometimes years, you take stock of your life and you survey the things around you and you see a life that doesn't seem any better. Your relationships are still troubled. Your finances are still poor. Your job is still unfulfilling. The world around you is still falling apart and your own health is still failing. And you're left to wonder about this King Jesus and the promise of his kingdom come in your life. But you see, our problem and the problem of these first Palm Sunday worshipers is not a failure of a king or a disappointing kingdom. In fact, our problem is our expectations. In fact, let me give it to you this way. Our problem is that we don't expect enough of Jesus. We don't expect enough of the kingdom. We focus on the worldly. We want our kingdom to be a kingdom of the world, kind of like Camelot. We want to be set up on the hill so that everybody has to look up to us. We want Jesus to give us everything that we like about this world and then some, and just take away everything that we do not. We want this world to be the kingdom. And yet Jesus tells us, my kingdom is not of this world. The people that first Sunday didn't get that. In fact, the disciples didn't get it either. Um, John, as he's recounting this tale to us, there in, in verse 15, you see uh, if your text might be a little bit like mine, it's offset from the rest of the text. That's because this is a quote from Zechariah 9.9, in which the prophet Zechariah is talking about 
Messiah and that he would come. And John is being helpful to us, his reader, linking this event to this messianic prophecy, saying, look, this is what's going on here. And yet, John also gives us a little bit of commentary about what was going on in his mind and the other disciples' mind at the time. So if you look in verse 16, he says, his disciples... Now, he's just made this connection between the triumphal entry and this Old Testament scripture. And John says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't make the connection between what they knew and what they were seeing. You see, what didn't they understand? Did they not understand that he was Messiah? No, they knew that he was Messiah. The people actually knew that he was Messiah. Maybe they tripped into it and, and, you know, accidentally got it right, but they knew that he was Messiah. Did they not know that he was the Son of God? No, they knew that. Peter had already testified to Jesus that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Christ, by the way, is the Greek rendering of the word Messiah. It just means anointed. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. They knew that. What they didn't understand, though, was Jesus' nature as Messiah King. Or more specifically, they did not understand what his purpose, what his mission was as Messiah. You see, they shared the view of the people around them. They thought that he was coming in to liberate the people and establish Israel once again as a premier nation in the world. I know that they did not understand the mission because Jesus actually told them what the mission was and they rejected it flat out. At one point, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he's teaching them and he tells them, I have to go to Jerusalem and there I will have to be uh, harassed and eventually killed by the religious leaders there. And Peter sort of says, Jesus, Jesus, come here. He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He rebukes God Almighty. Bold move, Peter. But he says to Jesus, Jesus, this can't be. These things won't happen to you. You can almost see the gears moving in Peter's mind as he's thinking to himself, Jesus, you are the Messiah, and Messiah doesn't die. Messiah wins. These things aren't going to happen to you. And some of you remember how Jesus responded to Peter. He looks at Peter, and in his best King James English, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, this image that you have of what's going to happen is a hindrance to what my mission actually is. And it would be better if you just got out of the way, because right now you are being a tool used by Satan. They rejected Jesus' mission. In fact, just a few weeks ago, when Randy was walking us through the passage that brought Jesus first to Bethany and now to Jerusalem, he's talking again with his disciples, and he says to them, look, I think it's time for us to go to Jerusalem. It's time for me to go be glorified because of the Lazarus thing, and it's time for us to then go into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And the disciples say to him, no, Jesus, they want to kill you in Jerusalem. See, in their mind, they were thinking, you're Messiah, Jesus. If you go, you'll die, and if you die, you can't be conqueror, you can't be victorious. You see, they did not understand these things. But then it says, at first, because eventually they did get it. 
And again, John is so helpful to us because he tells us what made the difference for them, what helped them to see Jesus for who he truly was and for what he truly had to do. And that comes in the second half of verse 16. So it says, they did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When Jesus was glorified, it turned on the light bulb for them. It was their aha moment, and all of a sudden, they got it. You see, when John says, when Jesus was glorified, he is talking about the death and the resurrection of their Lord. You see, the cross and the empty tomb make sense of everything. It made sense of their lives. It made sense of what they had done with Jesus the pre previous three years. It made sense of that last week of pain and suffering. It made sense of their own people's history, and it made sense of their Old Testament. And now they could look at passages like Zechariah 9-9 and say, yeah, obviously that's about Jesus. You see, that's what the cross and the resurrection does. It is the lens through which we must read all of the Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament too. It's only by looking through the cross and the resurrection that we understand what God was doing in his people throughout history. It's only through Jesus do we understand his promise to Abraham about descendants numbering like the stars. It's only because of the cross and the resurrection and what was accomplished there that we understand Joseph when he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's only through Jesus that we understand Moses as deliverer. We understand David as shepherd warrior. And it's only through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we understand what God had accomplished all along in the exodus, in the exile, in the deliverance, into the promised land, in the judges, in the kings, in the prophets. Everything God was doing now makes sense because of the cross and the resurrection. You see... They knew now that, yes, Messiah had come to conquer and drive out the enemy. But the enemy wasn't Rome. The enemy was our sin. Jesus had come to liberate us, but not liberate us from earthly oppressors, but to liberate us from the eternal oppression of our sin. The cross and the resurrection makes all the difference. It helps us to understand what God is doing, and it helps us to understand our own lives. You see, Jesus could have come into the city that day and driven out the Romans. He could have done it with but a thought. He could have forced Caesar to bow the knee. He could have made Jerusalem the capital of the world. And he could have lifted up the Jewish people to be honored by everyone else. And in our lives, Jesus could come in and do the same thing. He could come in and he could make your relationships better. He could make your job more, more worthwhile. He could make you fabulously wealthy and, and unbelievably healthy. He could make it so that the kids listen when you talk and the cat comes when you call. Jesus could do all of that. And yet, at the end of the day, we would still be doomed, mired in our sin. 
Jesus didn't come to give us a comfortable earthly kingdom. Jesus came to give us citizenship in an eternal heavenly kingdom. You see, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he took all of your sins upon himself. In fact, Paul tells us he didn't just take your sins, he became sin for us. And your sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus, and you bear them no more. And in place of your sins, you are given a robe. You are given his robe, a robe of pure righteousness. You didn't earn it. Jesus gave it to you because he loves you and he chose you. And now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. Our sin, which is that barrier between us, a sinful people, and him, a holy God, a barrier we could never tear down, we could never climb over, uh, Jesus gives us righteousness that we now are on the other side of that barrier and we can spend eternity with our Father uh, God. That is what Jesus did. That was Messiah's mission that he accomplished. That was the king that he was and the kingdom that he brings. Brother or sister, you might be walking through a valley of deep despair right now. Um, it could be that the only thing you see is your pain. You feel like the enemy is pressing in on every side. Your heart is broken and your mind is reeling. Let me challenge you in this moment to do this. Pick up your palm branch. Wave it before the Lord. Cry out to God, Hosanna, a word that means save now, O God. Cry that out to God. Spend time at the foot of the cross and dwell within the empty tomb. And think about for a moment, consider what Jesus has given to you. And it far outpaces earthly blessings. It is eternal security. It is an eternal presence in the very presence of God the Father because of Jesus Christ. That is your citizenship in your kingdom. That is your king. And realize that these trials and these tribulations, they are temporary. They will be fleeting. I won't say you will remember them no more. I suspect we'll be allowed to remember them because they will be our testimony in heaven. When someone comes down the line and says, what did Jesus do for you? You will look at them and you will say, well, I was down and I was out. My marriage was in shambles. I was destitute. I was poor. Everybody had turned their back on me and yet I stand here now because Jesus Christ never left me and he forgave my sins. Your trials are temporary, and they will be objects to lay down at the feet of Jesus in praise. And thank God for that. I hope and I pray that that is enough for you. But there's more. Um, this is not the only triumphal entry that is recorded for us by Jesus into our world. 
this one already occurred. The next one has yet to come. Um, bless you. Um, the uh, book of Revelation, also written by the disciple John, in it, John is given a vision of how history is going to unfold and how God is going to bring judgment upon those that rebel against him and how he is going to redeem all of creation to himself. Some of you were a part of our Wednesday night Bible studies as we went through that, so this will be review for you, and I'm sure you'll allow me to review it because it's so awesome. Early on in the Revelation, relatively, John actually sees a scene that is reminiscent of our text this morning. He is standing and sees heaven before him, and there is a great multitude of saints. And they are facing and before the throne of heaven where Jesus is, and they are waving their palm branches in victory, and they are crying out their praises to the Lamb. But as the revelation and the vision unfolds before John's eyes, evil starts to advance. The evils of government and false religion and worldly powers, all led by their prince, the devil, do unimaginable things to God's people, trying to get at the heart of God. And it seems as though evil is unconquerable, that it's going to win. But here's what Revelation tells us. God is the author of history and the devil is only subject to it. Revelation tells us that God wins. The pages unfold and the verses unfold and the vision unfolds before John, and what he sees is God's army comes in and he defeats the armies of the devil, the armies of the world's world and the nations that were rebelling against him, and the battle is over in the blink of an eye. And God destroys the devil, and he establishes his eternal kingdom forevermore. That kingdom that we hope for actually does come to the new heaven and the new earth, and we will dwell there. But in my humble opinion, as this whole story unfolds, the climax of the revelation comes in chapter 19. See, when, when Christ came before in the gospel of John, he enters into the city, he comes in humility, riding on a donkey, ready to die. When Christ comes again, when he enters in triumphantly again, is described like this. In 19, Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our King triumphant entering into the world in exactly the way that we want to establish the kingdom that is beyond anything that we can ever Imagine this is your king and him glorified. 
he is coming again. And to that we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for the fact that you are gracious and merciful and kind enough to reveal yourself. Reveal yourself in the pages of Scripture, but then also reveal yourself in the person of Jesus Christ and to reveal yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit and how blessed we are because we know you, Father. Forgive us when we think lightly of what you have done and the kingdom you have established. Help us to dwell on it. Help us to rejoice in it that we might be a sweet fragrance to you, pleasing to you, to you, and that we might make you happy, God. Now, I want to say one quick blessing upon the fathers in the room, Father. I do pray that you would honor them today, that you would help them to have a good day. And I pray for the fathers that are attached to the people in this room. I just, I just pray that this is a good day for them. I pray that you inspire them to love their children, to tell their children, I love you and to hug their children. But then also, Father, I want to uh, acknowledge that there are many in this room for whom today is painful. For many and various reasons, I pray that you will whisper into their ears that you are their Father, that you love them, that you have provided a place in eternity for them, and may you empower them to celebrate this day rather than mourn. We love you, God. We praise you and we honor you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.